So let me first start by introducing myself. So my name is Maggie Mullen. Uh, I use they, them pronouns, and I am in LCSW in the state of California, in the Bay Area in Oakland. And today we are going to be talking about DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, and thinking specifically about some of the skills and practical applications of DBT. So to give you kind of a roadmap for the next two days, we are going to start today by talking a little bit about the overview of DBT and research. We're going to also focus on primary principles and strategies of DBT today. And then we are gonna spend pretty much the whole time tomorrow talking about skills um, that you can start applying pretty much right away from DBT. And we'll do a little bit of that today as well. So I wanna start by just giving a definition of DBT, right? Uh, DBT has a very long name, right? Dialectical behavioral therapy, or some of my clients like to call it diabolical behavioral therapy. So dialectical just kind of break it down means the synthesis or integration of opposites. And the primary uh, dialectic in DBT is between the seemingly opposite strategies of acceptance and change. So for example, DBT therapists accept clients exactly as they are, while also acknowledging that they need to change in order to reach their goals. And the skills in DBT that we're gonna be talking about are also balanced between acceptance and change strategies. Behavior means we take a behavioral approach to therapy, meaning we assess situations and target behaviors that are relevant to our clients' goals in order to figure out how to solve the problems in their lives. In behaviorism, we say that every behavior has a function. So for example, we ask, what's the function of a client threatening suicide again and again? And we try to learn why it's happening, what a client gets out of it, and what in their environment might be reinforcing this type of behavior. So kind of thinking in a context beyond just this person doing this behavior that is annoying me, for example. And then you all know what therapy is. So one of my favorite things personally about DBT is that it was developed by and for somebody with lived experience of severe emotion dysregulation problems. So in recent years, Dr. Marsha Linehan, the person who developed DBT, has spoken about her struggles with suicide, cutting, and hospitalizations in a more public way and shared that when she was hospitalized, when she was a young adult, she made a pledge to God that if she got out of hell, that she would devote her life to helping others get out of the same hell, which is how DBT was ultimately developed. And for me, that really, um, we talk about the idea like disability justice, nothing without us or about us without us, like that is part of how DBT works. So Dr. Marshall Linehan developed DBT in the 1980s out of a cognitive behavioral therapy base or CBT base. And she found though that using CBT with clients who had emotion uh, regulation problems like borderline personality disorder tended to cause frequent ruptures in the therapeutic relationship because clients felt invalidated by an approach that was heavily focused on change. So she developed DBT specifically with this balance of both change and acceptance, knowing that clients need to feel accepted and heard for what they're experiencing while simultaneously being pushed to change in areas that are not working. And since its development, DBT has been evaluated in many randomized control trials conducted in the US as well as across the world as you can see on this map here. And these international RCTs found that DBT is effective when implemented in other cultures. There are some adaptations that need to be made, of course, to kind of reflect the population that we're working with, um, but that their results are similarly strong compared to what we see in the US. And this map is from 2019. Um, so there's actually been some expansions since then as well. 
So to date, there have been nine randomized control trials and five controlled trials of DBT, which have resulted in improvement in the following areas. So again, who DBT was originally developed for, people with borderline personality disorder, who also are experiencing co-occurring suicidal and self-harming behavior, substance use issues, PTSD, high irritability. And we are also seeing shifts in changes where people who are experiencing emotion dysregulation and ADHD, PTSD, major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, um, for people who maybe don't have a diagnosis of BPD but are dealing with suicidal or self-harming behavior like teens, for example, we see this being spread more with kids who have severe emotional and behavioral dysregulation problems in binge eating disorder and bulimia nervosa. So we're seeing DBT be effective across a lot of different populations or diagnoses, kind of problems that are coming up for people. And in studies of DBT for people specifically with BPD, I'm gonna to refer to it as that, uh, but that borderline personality disorder, DBT outperformed control treatments in reducing self-injury, suicidal ideation, inpatient hospitalizations, hopelessness, depression, dissociation, anger, and impulsivity, as well as drug use. What we also see that I think is particularly encouraging as far as drug use is, or problematic drug use specifically, is that DBT has been found to be superior to control treatments in helping clients reduce their drug use. So accumulating evidence indicates that DBT also reduces the cost of treatment. So for those of you who are thinking about starting a full DBT program and you need buy-in, for example, from the person who manages the money at the clinic, uh, what we see is that um, uh, in a study from just 1998, so quite a while ago now, um, we estimated that DBT decreased costs by 56% in a community-based program. And in particular, they saw you know, sort of the expenses, for example, of decreased face-to-face -face emergency services contact drop by 80%. Hospitalization days by 77%, partial hospitalization days dropped by 76%, and crisis bed days by 56%. And as you all probably know, um, often in very uh, cost motivated kind of settings, right, like the, the county settings, in both, you know, really almost any setting at this point where people are struggling financially with things, um, we see that money is a big indicator, right? Obviously clients get better and that is really critical, but if we're trying to create a business case, money is sometimes what it comes down to. So we see also a decrease in overall hospitalization costs, which tend to be about $26,000 per client. Um, and this far outweighed outpatient services in terms of cost increase. So the amount that it costs to treat clients using a full DBT program far outweighs by thousands and thousands of dollars the amount that it actually costs to hospitalize a client, which is where most of these clients end up heading because they don't have effective services. So becoming a DBT clinician means being part of a full DBT team that includes these four elements. And I'm gonna briefly introduce to you what DBT looks like as a fully adherent program. And then we'll spend the majority of our time focused on DBT informed therapy, meaning understanding the principles and skills that DBT employs that you can start using with clients right away. So first is individual therapy, which is focused on enhancing clients' motivation and helping them apply the skills to specific challenges in their lives. So meeting weekly for you know, 50 or 60 minutes and clients complete diary cards each week, which we're gonna go over soon. This also includes weekly skills group, which is focused on enhancing clients' capabilities 
by teaching them behavioral skills. So teaching them skills that they can use in their lives and generalize in that way. And the group is a class where leaders teach skills and assign homework based on those skills. And again, clients typically attend for six months to one year, depending on the severity of their symptoms and their struggles. The third element is phone coaching, which is focused on taking those skills clients are learning in individual therapy and class and generalizing them into the, their life outside of this, right? So when they have a crisis at some time uh, during the daytime, during the nighttime, they can call somebody and get coaching on how do I implement these skills right now when I'm feeling emotionally dysregulated or I have a strong urge to cut, for example, or whatever it is. And in a fully adherent DBT program, phone coaching is available 24 seven to our clients. And lastly, there is the therapist consultation team, which is designed to be therapy for the therapist, specifically to support DBT therapists in their work with clients who often have severe, complex, and difficult to treat behaviors. And the team is really designed to help therapists stay motivated and competent so they can provide the best treatment possible. And that team meets weekly. So when we think about the goals of DBT, one of the things that I often hear is that DBT is a suicide prevention program. That's actually incorrect. We do not think of ourselves as a suicide prevention program. Instead, we sort of think of ourselves as a program where we help clients build a life worth living. We're not focused on just keeping clients alive, but living a miserable life. Instead, we're helping them build a life that's worth staying alive for, that's worth fighting for. And each client's life worth living is going to look really unique because it's specifically embedded in their cultural viewpoints, their personal goals and value system. And our providers, as our job as providers is really just to help them get there. The second goal of DBT is dialectical synthesis, as I mentioned earlier about dialectics. And really that's about helping your client learn to think in a more balanced way rather than going to extremes and then acting on those beliefs. Another way of putting this is as walking the middle path or finding what's left out in the client's thinking or in their life. So the way we go about reaching these goals in DBT is by using the following types of interventions. So we use validation really heavily, which is an acceptance-based strategy, as I mentioned before, problem solving, contingency management, which is a key part of behaviorism, observing limits, skills training, exposure-based interventions, and cognitive modification. And today we're gonna to spend the majority of our time on skills training. Again, kind of the more practical things that you can start doing right away with clients. So we're gonna talk for a moment about what the stages of treatment look like in DBT. And there are four primary stages. So the first starts with stabilization. And stabilization is essentially the idea of helping clients manage and reduce the problem behaviors that they may be engaging in. We're gonna talk a little bit more in a minute about what's included there, but these are the life-threatening behaviors that are preventing our clients from doing the things that they want to do essentially. Stage two, for clients who have co-occurring SD, which is a lot of our clients who come into this treatment because we see that trauma is the basis for a lot of people of emotion dysregulation, we offer DBT PE or DBT informed prolonged exposure therapy. For stage three, it's all about building a life worth living. And granted, building a life worth living is infused throughout all stages of DBT. This is where the real focus is then on now that things are stable in your life, how do we build up that life worth living even more? And then lastly, stage four is about reaching deeper meaning in their lives or finding meaning there. So let's talk about stage one a little more. So in DBT, we target three areas of 
behaviors. And the first area are life-threatening behaviors, which are behaviors that could lead to the client's death, such as suicide attempts, self-injury, or violence towards others. In the second kind of area that we target are therapy interfering behaviors, which are behaviors that interfere with the client receiving effective treatment or that burn out the therapist. And these behaviors may be performed by the client and or the therapist. So that could include things like being late to sessions, canceling appointments, not being honest about what's going on or not being collaborative. Again, with the emphasis being that clients can engage in therapy interfering behaviors, but so can therapists. And part of our role as therapists is to identify what are our common therapy interfering behaviors, right, across clients amongst and also with specific clients. So for example, one of the therapy interfering behaviors that I was really working on, particularly in the beginning of becoming a DBT therapist was being conflict avoidant, right? Which behaviorally meant uh, not addressing certain things with clients. So not speaking up when a client was angry or not giving them direct feedback about something, right? So things that I am working on actively as well and getting support from my consultation team around. And then the third area being quality of life interfering behaviors. And this constitutes any other type of behavior that interferes with the client building their life worth living, including things like non-life-threatening substance use, disordered eating behaviors that are not life-threatening, getting into fights or yelling at others, not speaking up for themselves, self-isolating, stopping medication suddenly. Again, anything that can kind of get in the way. So DBT is a principles-based treatment, not a skills-based treatment and not a rules-oriented program. So it's really important when we start talking about DBT to understand the difference in how we approach clients in treatment and DBT, because typically the clients who benefit from DBT, right, the people who are coming and seeking services from us, in general, are used to being fired by therapists or burning out therapists quickly. And so it's important that they hear about the approach that we take in working with them in DBT that's going to be different, knowing that it actually takes a lot, like a lot, a lot to get kicked out of a DBT program. So assumptions that we make about clients, and again, I hand them a piece of paper to my clients, so they are on the same page with me. Clients are doing the best that they can. Clients want to improve. Clients must learn behaviors both in therapy and the context of their day-to-day lives. Clients cannot fail in DBT. Clients may not have caused all of their clients or their problems, but they have to solve them anyway. Clients need to do better, try harder, and or be more motivated to change. And the lives of suicidal individuals are unbearable as they are currently being lived. And what you can probably see on here, if we're again thinking from that perspective of acceptance and change, there are a lot of acceptance-based strategies and also some change-based strategies in here around the assumptions. Now, assumptions about treatment and DBT. The most caring thing a treatment provider can do is to help clients change in ways that bring them closer to their own ultimate goals. Clarity, precision, and compassion are of the utmost importance. So knowing why you're doing what you're doing as a therapist. So for example, why you're withdrawing warmth from your voice and your facial expressions in this session. For example, when there's a behavior that you're trying to extinguish in a client, as an example. The therapeutic relationship is a real relationship between equals. So this looks like maybe saying to my client something like, I'm the expert on DBT and you're the expert on your life. And we're going to work as a team to help you find and lead your life worth living. 
the principles of behavior are universal, affecting therapists no less than clients, right? So strategies like punishment or reinforcement apply to us as providers just as much to clients. The therapists need support and therapists can fail, right? Our clients can't fail DBT, but DBT can fail our clients. So in order to make DBT accessible to the populations that you're working with, we take uh, an approach of thinking about what are the small adaptations that need to be made to DBT in terms of the way you're offering examples or the skills that you're providing um, that would reflect the clients you're working with, the populations you're serving. So for example, with folks experiencing psychosis as one example, we wanna make these skills really concrete, right? Or somebody with an intellectual disability, for example, where we want them to uh, be really straightforward what we're offering, use language and materials that are simpler, more straightforward and free of psychological jargon, for example. We wanna make these skills we're offering accessible. In this case, it means free or easy to access options as many of the folks, you know, particularly that we work with in the county level tend to have lower fixed incomes. We wanna make what we're offering culturally responsive. And DBT, I think similar to many therapeutic treatments was created by white people. And that means that uh, that limits maybe what is in our manuals in terms of examples that we're offering. And while this has shifted, I think in really significant ways in the DBT community in recent years, it is really important that we offer culturally responsive practices that reflect your client's beliefs um, as well as behaviors. And lastly, we need to take into consideration how our clients' environments of structural racism and discrimination shape their experience as members of marginalized communities. So for example, certain behaviors are going to be punished in let's say black or indigenous people and are not punished in the same way in white people. So when we're kind of taking that behavioral approach about what behaviors are being reinforced and what are being punished, that is going to be different between different groups of people based on their environment. So I mentioned before that the main dialectic we're working to find a middle path between a DBT is acceptance and change. And this looks like finding a balance between validation, which is an acceptance-based strategy and problem solving, which is a change-based strategy. So as far as the skills modules go in DBT, there are four of them and they are divided up between acceptance and change. So as you can see on the image here. So on the left-hand side, we see mindfulness and distress tolerance, which are both acceptance-based strategies. Mindfulness being the practice of being fully aware and present in the moment, and distress tolerance being learning to tolerate pain in challenging situations without doing something to make it worse. On the right side, we see our change-based strategies. So first of all, emotion regulation, which is about decreasing your vulnerability to painful emotions and changing existing emotions and interpersonal effectiveness, which is about communication skills, asking for what you want, saying no, managing communication more effectively, uh, ending unhealthy relationships. So I think it's really important before we move on to talk a little bit about borderline personality disorder. Again, the sort of treatment for which DBT was originally developed, because I think probably most of you have experienced either through training in grad school, through colleagues, through other people, you have probably heard people talk very judgmentally about people with BPD. So I wanna explain the way that DBT approaches BPD that is different than some of those judgmental things that you're gonna hear. So we think of BPD as a pervasive disorder of the emotion regulation system, meaning people have difficulty knowing how to regulate their emotions. So specifically, we can think of DBT as 
one symptom with eight behaviors attached to it. And that primary symptom being emotion dysregulation, right? Or issues regulating your emotions. And each of the items that we'd see in the DSM-5 criteria are behaviors that are the result of clients trying to regulate their emotions or are a natural consequence of emotion dysregulation itself. So for example, clients may self-harm in an attempt to manage their emotions, right? To kind of regulate what they're experiencing. And they're maybe looking for a release from the extreme shame or sadness they're feeling. Another example is when clients lash out at their provider because they're already feeling dysregulated. Right, so all of these things kind of come under this header of emotion dysregulation, and they play out in different ways for each client. So the biosocial theory of emotion dysregulation, or sometimes called you know, BPD, we think first about um, biological differences, right? So genetics, individual variations, and in how reactive we are, how sensitive we are to emotions, and how impulsive we are. That comes together with the social part of biosocial, which is that clients who come to DBT tend to have grown up in some kind of an invalidating environment, meaning an environment that didn't allow them to express their emotions or doesn't train them on how to cope with their emotions, or they experience frequent criticism, trauma, or abuse. And racism, as well as other forms of oppression, also create this invalidating environment by telling people that their voices or their lives don't matter in some way. And this can happen both on that macro level with policies that hurt BIPOC people or through one-on-one -on -one interactions, such as microaggressions or tone policing as examples. And when these events or experiences occur, BIPOC people are often told you're overreacting, no, that wasn't racist, right? So kind of gaslighting techniques or other versions of invalidation. And understandably, that can lead to questioning yourself attempts to suppress your own emotions, or even have emotional outbursts in response to your frustration you're feeling to hearing these messages over and over again. And again, that's sort of uh, the context of how we think about this. And these two factors come together, right, kind of biological history, as well as this invalidating environment, to inform a client's uh, capacity to regulate their own emotions. Again, either because they're told their emotions are not okay, either um, through specifically being told those things or through violence, uh, neglect, et cetera, or simply because our clients are not taught, right? They grew up in an environment where maybe their parents know how to regulate their emotions. And so the models they were seen uh, were not particularly skillful in that way as well. So for people who do have that invalidating environment and or genetic predisposition to be more sensitive to emotions, we find, so there's kind of this chart here, you can see it's a little blurry, my apologies, but we see that those clients tend to start with higher sensitivity and have a more immediate reaction to things. They experience more intense emotions overall and have a slower return to baseline than average. So in order to escape this intense emotion that they're feeling, right, this intense up, this long period of being up, and then very slowly coming back down again, slow return to baseline, our folks often engage in ineffective strategies such as self-harm, drug use, getting into a fight, et cetera, to deal. And while this might give them short-term relief where their emotion then immediately drops down when they do that, the long-term consequences can be more challenging, right? For example, damaging relationships, um, uh, actually harming yourself in some way, right? With a suicide attempt or self-injury. Uh, it could be shame and guilt that come up afterward for your actions, et cetera. And I'm introducing this model to you not only so you can understand how DBT looks at the world, but also to help you 
develop more empathy and understanding for clients who struggle with emotion dysregulation. So as I mentioned before, there are lots of judgmental terms that are thrown out to describe people with emotion dysregulation issues. So, you know, again, some of the stereotypes we hear, we hear language like attention seeking, manipulative, help rejecting, holding people hostage, right? All this language you've probably heard. And you've maybe even used some of that language yourself, right? Because again, a lot of us are trained in this way, unfortunately. So in order to move away from that approach, in DBT, we shift the focus to look at our clients from a non-judgmental lens and to maintain, in order to maintain empathy for them. We're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get to our mindfulness module. But when you're looking at a client's behaviors, again, you're asking yourself from a behavioral lens, what is the function of this behavior? And not only does it help you target their ineffective behaviors more uh, effectively, because you understand all the factors involved and why they're happening, but it also helps us build empathy for that client, right? There are behavior that we think about um, kind of stereotypically in BPD is often desperate and unskillful attempts to get their emotional needs met, right? Our clients are trying to get their emotional needs met, but it turns out they're in ways that are not so effective because they don't know necessarily another way to do it. And so we think of symptoms here as deficits in the skills of emotion regulation, distress tolerance, and interpersonal effectiveness. So our job as therapists is to help them, the client focus on increasing their skillfulness, right? That's why we teach them and have these classes with so many different skills is to fill those deficits they might have in learning. And when we look at people experiencing emotion dysregulation, we instead think of them as quote unquote ineffective manipulators, right? Meaning that we all do things to manipulate our environment, right? Every single one of us. So for example, I might complicate, compliment somebody uh, when you are in a meeting with me in order to reinforce that other person and build our relationship, which also makes it more likely that you'll help me when I ask you for something in the future, right? I am engaging in more effective manipulation when I provide that compliment, for example. And what makes us quote unquote successful manipulators is that people are less aware of the actions that we're taking, right? They are less obvious. So folks with BPD, right, or emotion dysregulation often struggle to manipulate their environment uh, in a way that is less obvious and is maybe more ineffective. So for example, that might be threatening to harm themselves if somebody doesn't do what they're asking for. And our job in DBT is to help our clients become more effective manipulators of their environment because that is a normal part of being human in order to get our needs met. So DBT therapists, communicate with clients in a very different way than your average therapist. And you probably already learned that just through some of the approaches we take in treatment that seem a little bit different, including things like the real relationship between equals and DBT. But we're going to talk about what therapeutic style looks like. So first of all, we use something called irreverent communication to get a client's attention, to shift their effective response, and or to get them to see things in a completely different point of view. Typically, that means you're responding in an unorthodox manner, like using humor where a more serious approach is expected, or a serious response when a client didn't take the situation seriously themselves. So for example, um, one of my colleagues shared an example with me recently about when a client said to him that she would cut herself if he didn't answer the phone the moment she called. What he said to her was, but what if I have diarrhea? Or this could be an example of when a client storms out of a session saying, I'm going to kill myself. You could respond to them by saying something like, I thought you agreed to not drop out of treatment. 
right? These are ways of, again, throwing our clients off by providing a response that they may not expect. Next, we use self-disclosure, right? And again, this is different than I think a lot of therapeutic modalities where we often share examples of how we use skills in our own lives. And how much we share, of course, is based on our personal limits as always. So for example, I might describe how I use the skill of urge surfing from TBT to avoid flicking off a driver who cut me off in traffic on my morning uh, way to get there today. And clients tend to be more engaged when we share about ourselves. So it's one way to, again, build that relationship between equals, kind of reduce that perceived power differential, and also get our clients to pay attention and listen. Because as soon as you probably experience this yourself, as soon as you share something about yourself, client often pays more attention than they would otherwise. Next, we are radically genuine with our clients um, in order to communicate our care and that real relationship I mentioned. So for example, um, I might say to a client, when you do that, it makes me mad at you. Right? I'm sharing a real reaction, a genuine reaction to a client's behavior. Because again, a lot of what is contingent on treatment is our relationship. And that might be the only way we can get a client to work on change is by sharing with them how their actions are affecting us, for example. So for example, um, uh, we curse, right? We are sort of our genuine selves in DBT. Um, so I'm gonna use some cursing language just as a FYI to everyone coming up here. But when a client might be discussing their suicide plan with me, right, talking about the actions they're planning to take, I might say to myself, you're killing yourself would really fuck me up, right? And I'm really deadpan serious with them about that. Lastly, we use warm engagement and we are responsive to our clients. Specifically, we respond to what our clients are saying with interest and concern. So for example, if a client gives me a recommendation for a TV show to watch, you better know that I am writing that down. Right? And I might even go check out a few episodes so I can talk about them with them in the next session if I have the time to do that. And these strategies, right, these kind of stylistic strategies or therapeutic styles come together, again, to reduce that perceived power differential between the therapist and client, to communicate trust and respect for the client, and deepen the attachment and intimacy of that relationship. Because that our relationship with our clients is often the ultimate contingency in DBT. So let's talk about validation for a second. So DBT, again, the way we look at things, as I mentioned before, is through an acceptance and change lens. And if we are starting with the acceptance-based strategy of validation, we think that all emotions are valid, meaning that they make sense in some way, right? They were maybe survival strategies at some point. They might come from a place of trauma or invalidation, et cetera. And there's a reason that our clients are reacting in the way they are and reminding yourself of that can help us again build that empathy when it's not there. So all emotions are valid and they're not all justified, meaning they don't necessarily match the facts of the current day situation. And so why we start with validation first is to say it makes sense, right? That you're feeling the way you do. It doesn't necessarily make sense to the situation right now, but it, it does make sense in the context of your life. We are going to get into the differences more about um, what emotions being valid versus justified tomorrow when we go through emotion dysregulation. But we want to just always focus on validation first, right, before we focus on any change strategy. So validation, right, ultimately communicates to the client that their responses make sense and are understandable within the context of their life. It acknowledges that there are causes of emotions, thoughts, and behaviors, right? Again, history can be a big cause. 
this relationship, how you're feeling at that moment can have a cause. They come from somewhere. It's not random. So there are six levels in validation that we're going to go through briefly right now. So the first is staying awake, right? Which sometimes can be harder with doing virtual visits, for example, but that is literally just listening to the client, right? Basic level, right? Any therapy offers that. Two is accurate reflection, which is about verbal communication, right? So when a client says something, you are trying to reflect back to them what they hear. Third is articulating unverbalized emotions, thoughts, or behavior patterns. The fourth is around considering past learning or biological dysfunction, right? Normalizing the historical context based on how you were treated growing up, it makes sense you feel that way, right? That might be one way that I use V4, validation level four, to validate historical context for somebody. V5 is validation in terms of present context. Of course you got upset about that. It's super frustrating, right? You're finding what's valid in their response in the here and now of what's happening in this situation. And lastly, again, this is where radical genuineness comes in on V6. This is communicating equality and mutual respect. So for example, I might say to a client, that would really piss me off too, right? So I am giving a radically genuine response to validate my client that's coming from my voice, right? Not like a general validation that's happening at some of these other levels, but this is a really personal one. And the more that we move up these ranks, so kind of V6 is the most validating of all of these responses. And V1 is kind of the lowest level, right? That we are typically doing all the time with our clients. So we might employ different levels of validation with our clients depending on what's happening in terms of um, the actual content our clients are sharing and our relationship as well. So I'm going to skip ahead to diary cards for a moment, only because I want to introduce you to these before we watch our video in a moment, where we're going to see these stylistic strategies in play. But in order to understand uh, this video clip, I need to explain the diary card real quick. So the diary card is designed to track behaviors that clients are trying to decrease, as well as skills they're trying to increase. This helps account for behavior between sessions and skills usage. So we check the diary card at the beginning of every session in DBT. And a client essentially will fill this out uh, in a box where they rate the current level of urges they have, for example, to quit therapy, self-harm, or regulate their own emotions. And these ratings really give us an opportunity to talk about what may need to be done in that session to help those urges go down or manage any issues that are coming up in the relationship. So let me show you what one looks like. So the area that I was referring to just now is the bottom right here, which when a client comes in, we have them rate their urges that are down here in the bottom right corner, right? To quit therapy, use drugs, or die by suicide as examples. These might be modified based on our client's target behaviors, but there's some examples here. We also look at their ability to self-regulate emotions, actions, and thoughts. Like how in control do you feel today, essentially? And then throughout the course of the week, the client is filling out all this top section here. So we are looking at their highest urges. So for example, clients might have different urges um, or life-threatening behaviors as we talked about before that we put in here. But so for example, let's say with a client I'm working with, we might have things in here like suicide attempts, self-injury, and starting fights, right? Might be the highest targets, most kind of problematic behavior or potentially life-threatening behavior that they are tracking. And what a client is filling out in here is zero to five means their urges, right? So how strongly did you want to 
uh, self-harm today. And then the yes or no is indicating, did you actually act on it or not? And when we have this, when somebody comes into a session, it helps our clients, first of all, build their awareness of their behavior. When we start to track behaviors, it tends to actually lower clients' engagement with them, which is kind of a cool effect that can happen. But it also gives us information for therapy, right? I'm sure that you all have gone into many sessions, right, where the client cannot remember what happened yesterday, let alone what happened in the course of the week or the several weeks in between sessions that you have. So this is a tool to give us accurate information about what happened kind of throughout the course of the week. It also gives us the ability to set the agenda for the session. So for example, if our client has engaged in any of those three target behaviors, like any forms of self-harm or injury to others, we are going to start the session by doing a behavior chain and focus our attention and time on it. We're gonna talk about behavior chains a little bit more in detail later, but just to kind of give you a sense. The rest of what's tracked on this diary card are things like um, level of emotional misery or physical misery, levels of joy. If a client's taking medication, we track that just to keep them on track, that's an issue for them. How many times they called me for phone coaching? Did they do their homework? Have they been using skills? And then we tend to include in the right column um, life or quality of life interfering behaviors, right? What are the things people want to increase or decrease to build that life worth living? So for example, with a client, it might be time with their family and maybe to decrease marijuana use as examples here. Back page of a diary card is basically all of the skills from DBT. And a couple of reasons this is useful. One is when we start tracking behaviors, we tend to increase them or decrease them depending on what our goal is. But it also helps the client keep track of like, what are we even learning in here and how can I like use these skills effectively? So let's say a client is early in treatment, they only know five skills in the diary card, they are not accountable for this whole list of like 27 skills on here, right? This actually doesn't even include all of the DBT skills, it's just many of them. But they're focusing on just what they know already. And it also helps me when a client comes into session and brings this in, it gives me a sense of, um, are you using skills? What's getting in the way? Uh, what are the barriers? Are you not understanding them? Do they not work in the context of your life, et cetera? So we can help a client kind of with that problem solving or education or help them generalize the skill. Or they might come in and say, I learned about the skill in class. I don't understand it. And so part of my job is to be like, okay, let's go through it together and think about like, how could you apply it to your life? Um, and thinking about like how that would work. Okay, so that's the brief over your diary card. We are going to watch a video in just a second. And what I'm going to have you do while we watch this video is you're going to be looking out for, we're going to go backtrack for a second here, a couple of things. You're going to be looking out for where do you see DBT's stylistic elements? So for example, irreverence, self-disclosure, radical genuineness, warm engagement, responsiveness. You're also going to be looking out for where do you see the levels of validation? Don't feel like you need to memorize these yet. This takes a while for most clinicians to do. You can take a picture of the slide if it's helpful to keep you on track. But where are you seeing validation period is kind of what we're gonna be tracking today. So you're gonna be looking out for those things as you watch this video. So this is Dr. Alan Frazetti, um, who is an expert clinician in DBT. And he is conducting a, basically a, a mock session with a student at the NEA BPD conference. And specifically, we're gonna watch the part of the session where he is reviewing her diary card. That's what we just reviewed just now. So again, first thing when she walks in the door, handing the diary card, they're gonna go over it together. 
And this is this client, Alice, and she is essentially using her diary card specifically to monitor um, her suicidal thoughts, her suicidal urges, self-harm, and restricted eating. Those are her primary target behaviors. She's also tracking how her sleep and relationships are going as well. And something to name right here is these, this is an example of using DBT with a white therapist and a white client. And that unfortunately, um, we are limited in terms of some of the model options we have of this. So take that into account in terms of maybe how you might be approaching things differently with, based on kind of reflecting your client style as well as your own kind of identity and your client's identity as well. Give it to me because that's what you'd actually do. So come on. Hi, Alice. Hi. You okay? No, you look terrible. Thanks. <laughs> well, okay, look, can I say that differently? I think I stepped on your toe. You look like you feel terrible. I do. Is that better? Yeah, okay. That was really mean. Oh, sorry. Did that come out as mean? That's what I say to my wife. She doesn't take it the same way. Um, no, I meant actually just that you look like you feel terrible. I was a little too abrupt there, wasn't I? All right, let's take a look at what's going on. Um, oh. My goodness, look what's going on here. Oh, what a week you've had. Wow. So you hurt yourself last week uh, on Friday. Okay, right. Are you having trouble even focusing right now? Yeah. Look, yeah. look at your urges to quit there. Yeah, there we are. You want... You. I want to? Okay. Okay, look at me. Come on. Come on, kiddo. Where'd you get that? Okay, your suicidal urges are high. Your urges to use drugs are high. Your misery is a 9 out of 10. And somehow you think I want to quit therapy. It's not somehow. It's because I cut myself on Friday, like yeah. you said. Yeah. Okay, look at me. Look at my reaction. I'll do a little replay. Okay, watch my face. You said, oh boy, this is oh, something. Looks like a terrible week for you. You look terrible. Yeah. That's what you said. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'll let that one go. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay, watch my face when I notice that you cut yourself on Friday. Okay, watch my face. You've got to watch my face because you've got a different idea in your head about me than. Yeah, based actually on history. Whose history? My history. Okay, that's why I know. Right, but I'm. But you don't. Have, we don't have so much history. No, we so, don't. So you We're pay, just starting. All right. So I want to point out what you're doing right now. Is you are paying attention to what's in your head, in not what's history. not what's right here. No, what's right here. Well, that your history. You brought it with you, right? Because it happened. Yeah, but it's not happening. What if it's not happening right now? <laughs> what if it's not? Could you be open to that? Being open. To the chance of it not happening means yeah. that I'm opening to myself to the chance of it happening. No, you've already again. decided it's happened. Sounds like you've already got plenty of suffering as though that happened. Yeah, I got shitloads. So of can suffering. you just be open to the other possibility? Try it. Look at me. <laughs> Seriously, come on. Am I growing tumors or something? What's the story here? Okay. Okay. I'm looking. I say, oh my gosh, you had a terrible week. You know, you're suicidal. Well, you got to keep looking. I know it's hard. <laughs> You gotta look at me, because you're worried about me firing you. No, how terrible I am. How terrible? You mean you're judging yourself right now? No, you're judging how I terrible am? I am. Or you're okay. gonna find that out and 
just gotta like say, all of the other therapists. This is hard. You're making me hot. <laughs> okay. Look, here's the thing. I, here's what I don't want to do. What? Okay. I don't want you to get stuck on something that's not valid in the present moment. Do you think having five therapists in a row fire you isn't valid? That's valid, but this one's not yet firing you. That's okay. what they said to me. Yeah, I know. And what happened? Okay, so tell me. Maybe we didn't explore this enough. I thought we talked about this quite a bit a Which couple one? weeks ago. Which one? Well, the most recent one. About what, remember we talked about this, right? We went over each one of these, okay? Each one. Okay. And we talked about our plan for how to handle those situations. Well, it's hard to remember. You talk so much. I do. <laughs> that is true. But we made, we made some arrangements. We made kind of some deals about how we were going to handle these situations. I didn't call you for coaching because I was... I knew I was going to cut well, myself. Hang, hang on, but, but that you, you don't get fired for not calling for coaching. You don't get fired for that. Well, I didn't do what we agreed on. Yeah, but, but I, never, I was very clear with you that you don't get fired for having the problems that bring you into therapy. Yeah, well, that's what my last therapist said, too. So you guys read the same book. Maybe. Okay. Look, but here's what I'm trying to get at. Right? You're kind of stuck on that right now, and that's keeping us from working on what's actually going on in your life. That is true. I'll okay? give you that. Yeah. So if you're, I, w- I guess I would say if you give me 30 seconds of your actual attention, <laughs> we might move past that. Okay, I can do that. All right. I can give you 30 seconds. That's all I'm asking for I right now. I can do that. Oh, okay. So 30 seconds. I'm not firing you. Will you write it down? Yeah, sure. Right now? Yeah, in fact, I'll even send you a mail, an email. Want me to text you? I want you to write it down on my diary card, please. Yeah, sure. Oh, I just threw away my pen. My pen was hot, too. You dropped it on the floor. I dropped it on the floor. (laughs) Okay. I'm not going to write it on this one, because I'm going to keep this one. I'm going to write it on your next one, okay? Please. Do you want me to sign it? Okay. I won't fire you. Right, dear Alice. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I did. Thank you. Can I just write Alan? No. Alan E. Frizzetti seems a little formal. Doctor Frizzetti. Doctor. <laughs> Oi. Okay, Doctor Alan E. Frizzetti, the whole thing. Can you read that? Yeah. Okay, you're the only one who can. But then that's good. All right, will that help? I think that's fantastic, actually, if that'll help. Now, does that make a difference? Yeah, because I can hold on to Yeah, but I mean, right this moment, does that make a difference? That's pretty good. Okay. So you really, you really got stuck on this, huh? You really, I, you I get it. Me? Do I blame you for what? For having this, this horrible set of experiences that makes you worried about this? No. That I completely mean, makes sense to me why you would be so scared of this completely makes sense. But what I want your job in this, okay? I've got a job in this and you've got a job in this, okay? Okay. okay look over here. It hurts. I know, but look over here even though it hurts. One, two. Yeah. You, you notice when you look over here, you're feeling really ashamed right now, right? But if you look at me, the shame will go down. 
You got to keep looking at me though, because you've got to you've got to look at me and see that I'm actually not not being critical of you. I'm not sure I 100% understand, but I think I got 95% of it. And if I don't, you'll tell me. Okay. I can do that. Okay. I can do but that. I want you to notice, if you just look at me and look at my reaction to my real, my reaction, not the other five therapists, you'll have a different experience. Okay. And your shame will go down right here. Okay? We'll see. Okay. Now, what I want to do um, is I want to I record the rest of our session. Now, remember we talked about this? I just forgot to turn it on. Because um, I want you to be able to listen to this later. Okay? Because I think that... You're so upset right now that some of this is just not going to remember, right? It's going to be hard well, to remember. Yes, Understandably, yes. that's what happens to everybody. Yes. Okay? Well, that's and what, I want that's you to be able to hear me for. say, Alice, I like you. I'm not firing you. You haven't done anything that I would fire you for. Cutting myself? You, don't, you know the. No, I want you to be mindful of what we talked about about that. You know. Do you get fired for cutting yourself? I have In this therapy, from me, do you get fired for cutting yourself? Oh, and if I no. kill myself, then I fire you. That's right. And that's not fair. I promised I would not kill myself for the year. you got to promise you won't kill yourself for the year. Okay, good deal then. We're even. But I can't control my thoughts. No. They okay. Well, let's work on that. So right now, look at you. you got pretty high urges right now. They're not all the way to 10. You're at 6, right? Yeah. yeah. So the question is this. Um, I mean, like, are you gonna, is there any chance at a six, I, you know, we just don't know each other that well, that you will bolt out of the session and go kill yourself? Because if that's the situation, then I'm going to get really anxious no, and go sit in front of the door. Hospital. No, I'm going to go sit in front of the door. <laughs> no. Okay, good. Because I don't like being anxious about, like, you leaving in the middle of a conversation. Yeah, and if you did that to me, I'd be pissed off. Yeah, if I got up and left in the middle of a conversation, yeah. Well, I'm going to pay you. I wouldn't expect you to. Okay. So um, it looks to me, based on this, that you, know, you, you did cut yourself on Friday, but you're kind of like on a suicide chain right now. So, well, if your urges to, to kill yourself are that high right now, uh, is this the most suicidal you've been in the last week right now? No. Okay, so okay, that, that was worse. Okay, so then let's go back and talk about that. I cut myself because I was feeling suicidal. Because you were feeling suicidal. And I all right, so let's come back together and we are going to debrief for a second this video. And I want you to share, again, in the chat, or you can unmute if you prefer, where did you see the following? Again, the stylistic strategies we talked about, irreverent communication, self-disclosure, radical genuineness, warm engagement responsive, and the six levels of validation. So again, you can uh, take yourself off mute and share, or you can put them in the chat, whatever you prefer. Let's start with irreverent communication. Where did you all see this happening? Okay, so he said it's hot, right? When you take off his jacket or you're making me hot. Uh-huh. What else? Yeah, it's interesting because I don't think that his <laughs> he meant to actually use irreverent communication when he said you look awful, but it certainly turned out that way, right? It was also an opportunity for him to apologize when she was clearly like, that offended me, right? That's an important part of when our reverence doesn't land well to be able to apologize. My pen got too hot. Multiple times I agreed not to kill myself. You agreed not to, being one example. Uh-huh, right? So we, uh, 
use the, I'm going to go sit in front of the door if you try to kill myself or you kill yourself, right? That was sort of one option that he mentioned. Right, when he felt anxious that the client left the room stating that she would kill herself. Yeah. Okay, now what about self-disclosure? Where did we see him using, uh, you know, parts of himself or sharing about himself as examples here? Yeah, he, I think he said something like, I say that to my wife and she doesn't like it either. Yeah, another example of fallibility, right? I think one example of self-disclosure is saying, like, it would, I would be really anxious, right, if you left here saying that you wanted to hurt yourself, right? Like, just sharing about the reaction of how that would come up for him. Another example also of, like, radical genuineness of how somebody's affecting us. Okay, somebody mentions here asking her to look at his face when, to see he's not upset. Yes, that is a way that he is using himself as, you know, part of the, the intervention. There's also a point at which he says, if you look at me, the shame will go down. We haven't talked about this a lot, but that is an exposure-based principle, right? The idea that when we are using something called opposite action to shame, we're going to talk about this a little bit more tomorrow when we go through some of the skills around emotion regulation. But saying, like, when you look at me, right, when you're able to learn you can tolerate looking at somebody when you're feeling ashamed, the shame tends to go down when it's not justified. So that was one example, I think, in there of um, one of the skills from emotion regulation. Anything else that you all saw that seemed unusual or you have questions about from that video? Again, pop those in the chat. And I also want to hear about your examples of where did you see him validating her at the different levels? Where did validation happen? So yeah, he validated. What I liked about how he used that intervention somebody's mentioning, I love that he validated her feelings about being fired. He used the validation level V4, right? That it made sense given her history that she would be worried about being fired, right? Or being scared about being fired. And he also brings it into the part of, but what about in our relationship, right? Our current context, pointing out essentially that it's not valid this relationship here in the present moment, but absolutely in history, it makes sense that you would feel that way. Again, other places that you saw validation showing up. So he labeled her feelings of being ashamed based on how he observed her body language. So kind of making a guess maybe that she was feeling shame, right? That's one way we can use um, validation to, again, uh, in, on the V3 level of making assumptions or kind of reading into how somebody's feeling. I would say with V3, especially when we're saying kind of, are you like, um, you look like you're feeling ashamed, for example, we want to give that client the opportunity to correct us too, because sometimes we're off base, right, as, as well as we know somebody. So we might say something to follow up like, is that right? Any other examples of validation that you all saw you want to pop in the chat here? So somebody's asking, can I switch the slide on validation skills? Yep, let's go back for a sec. Levels of validation, here it is. So again, we were talking about staying awake. Accurate reflection. We saw a lot of that happening, of course. He's in the session physically and uh, mentally. We talked about, again, that example of articulating unverbalized emotion, thoughts, or behavior patterns. Considering past learning and biological dysfunction, validation in terms of present context, what's happening in the here and now, and then radical genuineness. Reflecting on her terrible week when viewing diary card was validating, right? Like, I think he said something along the lines of, like, it sounds like you had a terrible week or something like that. Like, that can be a very validating thing for people to, to experience. And that may also be V3, depending on how it's used, right? That he might be articulating the fact that like, it would make sense that you feel terrible also, right? If you are having a terrible week too. So um, let's talk about behavior chain analysis. So in this example with Alice, right? She is a client who's come into session and 
she shares that she'd self-harmed at some point that week, right? She's feeling pretty anxious about it. So when we review somebody's diary card, we see that that's the case. One of the first things we're going to do in a situation like that is to employ a behavior chain, right? Essentially, a behavior chain um, is an opportunity to look at a problem behavior of any kind. And it gives us the opportunity to look at what are the links in the chain or things that happen that led up to this behavior occurring and what are the consequences of it occurring. So we start with things like vulnerabilities, right? And this is anything that makes us more vulnerable to feeling intense emotions, such as poor sleep, not enough food, physical pain, stress, et cetera, right? The things that are kind of happening in the background that make us more likely to feel emotional, right? Those are the vulnerabilities we start with and asking them like, what's happening in the background for you right now? So then we examine next the prompting event, right? What is the thing that kicked off this chain to happen in the first place? So what is sort of the thing that happened, the thought that came up, the experience that you had that uh, prompted this kind of link of behaviors to happen? And then next we look at the thoughts emotions and physical sensations, as well as other behaviors that happen in this chain that led up to the problem behavior. I'm gonna give some examples in just a minute, so don't worry about that part. I just wanna give you an overview first. And once we have an idea of this, the links in the chain, again, everything that's leading up to it, we then wanna look at, so then what happened after you engaged in the behavior? What are the consequences of that problem behavior? And again, that can be, how did you feel? What happened? Uh, what came up for you, what did you learn, et cetera. And it's important that we look at consequences. We don't just look at what came before so we can intervene then, but also looking at realistically, what are maybe some of the motivations to change the behavior because there were consequences, right? Not all of our clients see those super clearly when they have a lot going on in their life. So let's look at what this could look like. So let's talk about a case example here. So. Uh, we're going to talk about Jimena, who uses she, her pronouns. She is a 35-year-old pansexual Latinx cisgender woman. She lives in a multi-generational household and is diagnosed with bipolar 1 disorder with a history of multiple hospitalizations for manic episodes and suicide attempts. She regularly self-harms in the form of cutting her legs and punching herself. She works full-time as a library assistant at the local library. She has support from her parents and grandparents, but they're feeling burned out with her due to how often she picks fights with them and then threatens to harm herself. She currently has a relationship with a partner and their relationship is up and down. So we are going to examine a specific situation for Jimena. So Jimena shares that she got into a screaming fight with her partner one afternoon this week. She left her partner's house and immediately got into the car and self-harmed. You ask her a few questions about what preceded the fight and she shares that she hadn't eaten all day and had slept poorly the night before. So let's look at a behavior chain here. So um, let's look first of all at vulnerability factors. So Jimena had shared, right, that she hadn't eaten all day and she had slept poorly the night before, right? And for most of us, when we haven't eaten and we haven't slept well, we tend to be more likely to be irritable, to be on edge, to be emotional, to cry more quickly. Right? That's kind of the idea of like hang, be feeling hangry, right? That that can happen, that we get more angry or irritable because we our blood sugar is not stable, essentially. So then we look at, okay, so what kicked off this chain of events? And what we see is that her partner had said something invalidating to her about her appearance after she dressed up nicely that day, right? This might be something we understand from her experience. 
So then we ask, so what were the thoughts that came up when your client said that, or excuse me, when your partner said that invalidating statement? So she might share something like, you know, thoughts came up like, uh, my partner doesn't care about me, or that no one cares about me, that I'm a failure, uh, you know, anything, right? The types of thoughts that are going to come up for her. And then I'm going to ask her about, so what are the emotions that came along with that thought? She might share, you know, that shame initially comes up, and then maybe even anger at her partner. And then we're asking about physical sensations. Okay, so what showed up in your body then at that point? And she might share something like there was muscle tension, uh, agitation, and it's common, you know, a lot for our BIPOC clients to describe their mental health symptoms in terms of physical ailments, physical sensations. So this is an area that you might spend some more time on depending on your client. And then we're looking at, okay, so then what are the thoughts and behaviors that occur after that point, right? Because you're feeling the shame, the anger's coming up, get that muscle tension, agitation going on. So she might have thoughts like, screw you and everyone else do. And so I, the question is, okay, so what did you do? What was the behavior then? And for her, she might share, you know, I scream at my partner and then I leave for my car. And that's the point at which then she's feeling particularly dysregulated and she ends up self-harming, right? And the self, this gray box here is where our problem behavior goes, right? It's the link in the chain where we're looking at what happened before and what happened afterward. So then we might ask Amanda some questions around, okay, so what happened after you self-harmed? How did you feel? And it's common for our clients to say that they got immediate relief from their emotional pain, right? There was like immediate reaction of like that flood of emotion again that we were looking at that chart before where things were really high, slow return to baseline. It might've brought those emotions down immediately, right? Feeling better. And then she might have thoughts like, uh-oh, I did it again right? Because she's already committed to not engaging in self-harming by virtue of being in DBT. So then she might have things like the emotions of shame that could come up again for having engaged in her target behavior. And then Hamina shares when we ask again more questions about this, that she then isolated herself and didn't answer the phone for several days at this point. And again, it's really important that we make these longer-term consequences clear to her since the immediate relief she gets from emotional pain is so reinforcing, right? There's an immediate relief that she gets from cutting. And so our clients don't often see also the longer-term consequences that come with that too, right? The fact that then she um, you know, isolated herself in her room and then didn't talk to anyone for several days. So next we move then to the solution analysis which is the idea, okay, thank you. Like we have a much better picture of what happened with the idea that we wanna use this information for how do you do things differently in the future? Because there tends to be patterns for clients, right? The same way there are for us of like what things lead up to a behavior that we are, you know, is a problem behavior for us and what happens afterward. We're thinking through not in a way to shame them for past behavior, but to say, let's prepare you for the next time this might come up, right? The next time your partner's invalidating, for example, the next time you haven't slept well and you're feeling more emotional. So we start the client by, or start that part of the session by asking the client, is there anything you did to try to avoid cutting, right? So what did you do to try to engage, avoid engaging that self-harm? And it's important that we elicit and highlight our client's attempts to, uh, you know, avoid engaging a behavior and also think through whether they're effective or not. So Hamena shares with me, you know, I took a shot of vodka to try to help calm me down. So the next question I ask is, was that effective? And she may tell me no in that situation, right? That didn't necessarily help me calm down here. So this is where we try to figure out, okay, so what could you do that would be helpful in these chains 
particularly early on to prevent engaging in self-harm. And this is where we use skills from DBT as well as the things your clients might already be doing to intervene here. So for example, it could look like um, rescheduling with her partner uh, to hang out when she'd slept poorly because she knows they're more likely to fight then. Or she could share with her partner ahead of time, I haven't slept well and I haven't really eaten so that they can manage accordingly maybe what they talk about or what they do that day. Like maybe they do something that's a little bit more chill than the item that they had planned, or maybe they go to eat, right, to make sure she gets some food, for example. I think in any place in this chain, Camina does need to eat something. So making sure that she gets some calories in her body. It could also be that she practices some distress tolerance in the form of self-soothing, right? Things like uh, taking a walk, drinking a warm cup of tea, um, something that is going to make her feel soothed and help reduce the intensity of that emotion rather than maybe taking that shot of alcohol. She could work on, for example, self-validating, right? Meaning turning to herself and being like, yeah, that sucked what my partner said to me. I, of course, I'm feeling upset about that, right? Being able to make space for her emotions in that moment. She might also work on challenging her thoughts using some of that cognitive modification strategy, Right, the thought that's coming up around, you know, no one cares about me, my partner doesn't care about me, challenging that and saying, okay, so what are the ways that people actually do care about me? Right? What is it? What are the other ways my partner shares that, you know, they love me? Or what are the other ways that I love myself, for example? Right? Trying to challenge or make a more balanced belief here. Again, finding that dialectic between maybe those extremes that she's experiencing. And if we are already at the very end of this change, she could call for coaching, right? She could call me, for example, as her therapist to call for coaching to see how can we prevent engaging in self-harm. She could also call a friend or a family member, right? A loved one or a support person to help her prevent from engaging in that behavior. And ultimately, the more we can engage or kind of intervene up chain, meaning further closer to where the actual prompting event happened, the less likely we are get to, to get to the point where the urges are super strong to self-harm, right? Because by the time typically clients get to the point of wanting to self-harm, the urges might be pretty high at that point, right? She might be feeling that at like a seven out of 10 or eight out of 10 that she wants to self-harm. And when we're in that much of a state of emotion mind, our thinking tends to be clouded, right? We may not be able to think through other options in such a clear way um, that we would otherwise do. So. Um, that's Jimena's behavior chain here. And there's not necessarily a lot of things that we would maybe do down chain, right? Because again, we're, our focus is on preventing the self-harm in the first place. And if we're taking a bit of a harm reduction approach here, we might also think about, okay, so remember how she, you know, after she self-harmed, she starts regretting it, feeling shame, and then eventually um, locks herself in a room for several days. That's also kind of a target behavior for Jimena, right? Because she is maybe not eating during that time, she's isolating socially, she may be missing work, for example, there might be the consequences that come with that. So for particularly somebody who's brand new to DBT, beyond focusing on everything before the self-harm behavior we can do for her, we may also do some focus around, okay, if you do self-harm, for example, which we don't wanna necessarily um, encourage in a client, but how do you still come to therapy that week or that day? How do you still kind of engage in treatment so that, um, uh, or ask for help or go back to work or do the various things you need to in your life so it doesn't actually cause even more problems after you self-harm because maybe you're missing week, you know, everything in your life that week because you're staying at home and isolating yourself. 
So there might be some work we do there as well, depending on the situation. That self-harm, again, we're trying to avoid that as much as possible, but it doesn't have to be the end of the next couple of days. Okay, so there's a question here about, did you mention that use of profanity words can come across as being more genuine? Yeah, and this depends entirely on uh, your personal style, right? So for example, um, I do curse in my life, right? That's something that is like culturally relevant for me. And so my version of being radically genuine with a client does sometimes involve cursing. If a client doesn't like cursing, I am not gonna do it, right? I'm gonna, we're gonna have a conversation about it. Um, but for clients who don't mind it or actually who enjoy it because it makes them feel more free to be more honest, I'm going to use it in those cases. Again, I'm not using language that's offensive to a client. I'm not using slurs. I'm using like words that make sense in context with the client I'm working with. So that might be a consideration we have in that situation of whether like who we use it with and how much we use it as well. Um, okay, so there's a question of, can you please clarify how irreverent communication can be used and why, and why it's helpful? So irreverent communication is a stylistic strategy in DBT. And what we're doing with irreverent communication is we are trying to change, I'm gonna read you my list of things here to make it really clear. Um, we are trying to potentially change a client's affective response. We are trying to shift their, and, and sort of get their attention uh, or to help them see things in a completely different point of view. So that are, those are the goals of irreverent communication and why we use it the way we do, right? I think a lot of our clients tend to expect certain responses from us or from others in their life. And this is a way, again, of kind of throwing them off their game to see things through a different lens because they've been responded to differently, right? If we think about the principles of behaviorism, this is an opportunity to, like if a client expects to be reinforced when they use a, when they say a certain thing or do a certain thing, we are maybe doing a different approach to that, right? That isn't gonna be the same response that, that is expected. And therefore they're gonna be kind of, uh, gives us an opportunity for thinking about things from a different perspective. Okay, so what we're gonna do now, since we don't have any other questions, is we're gonna do a comment waterfall. And what I'm gonna have you all do, right? In a lot of trainings we go to, um, and I experience this myself, I am in a training for several hours and I forget almost everything besides maybe one thing by the end of the training, right? In the next week when I try to go to practice this. And so what I want you all to do is you're gonna put in the chat one thing that you wanna start using with your clients right away. So it could be today if you're seeing clients, it could be this week. Realistically, what is one takeaway, maybe one pearl of wisdom that you either got from yourself as you're listening to this or something that I've said that you want to start practicing now? And I'm gonna have you put those in the comment section starting now. Diary cards, behavior chains, Levels of validation, radical genuineness, reverence, love it. Great examples, everyone. Great, and for those of you who are interested in diary cards, there are so many different versions. That is one that I personally use, but they're all there's lots of different versions available online. Normalizing the function or the historical context and some acknowledging the function of somebody's behavior, behavior chain, great examples, everyone, love it. Awesome. Wonderful examples y'all are coming up with. Therapist transparency. Yeah, that's a huge part of DBT. We are not trying to trick our clients. We are trying to be really straightforward with how we're approaching things as much as possible. The ineffective manipulator kind of idea or metaphor. Yeah, great. Diary cards. Okay, great everyone. So we are going to wrap for today and take care and have a great rest of the day. Thanks all.